Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. Previously on Electric Boogaloo. What if I served you sardines and dark beer for breakfast? I I wonder if Tyrion's done some kind of crazy reading of a Mad Maester that has some kind of aphrodisiac, <laughs> like you know, this is uh, Westeros Viagra. This is Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Happy to announce that we will move to a season two for Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. And that will probably start in a few weeks. Can't say exactly when. The pod today you're listening to is a reflection on the first nine chapters, plus some listener feedback with Steve and I. So today we won't be covering a particular chapter this is an opportunity for you, if you haven't been reading along, to grab that book and read the first nine. It, d- it won't it won't take long. And then when we get back together in a few weeks, you'll be all caught up. My guest this week is Gregory Webster. Gregory is a professor of psychology, and he has particular interest in human aggression and human sexuality. So yeah, that's sex and violence, folks, which makes him uniquely qualified to talk about a Game of Thrones. He's taught classes on Game of Thrones, and he's actually incorporated Game of Thrones a little bit into his own research, and he talks about that toward the end of our interview. Uh, I... I love this interview. I couldn't wait to put this out. Without further ado, here is Dr. Gregory Webster. Greg, what makes you interested in Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones is interesting to me because I'm kind of a fan of sci-fi, and I really read it more as potentially a sci-fi novel than a fantasy novel or series, I should say. So that's that's what's kind of the draw for me. All right, tell me about this. So let's suspend an easy genre solution at this point. All right. And let's look at what are the guiding principles of science fiction that would make you think that this particular book fits more into a sci-fi genre? So I see sci-fi a lot of times having to do with the conflict within human nature and with second conflict between human nature kind of as a whole and some other outside force or entity. Mm. And so it's basically a lot of sci-fi is there's some sort of outside force or entity, maybe it's aliens or something like that. And there's a conflict between humans or humanity as a whole and this other force. But then within humanity, there's also this kind of conflict going on between, well, how do we deal with this? And how do we approach this? How do we, do we change? Do we stay the same? It becomes kind of a social dilemma in a way. Mm-hmm. And th- there are certain staples to sci-fi 
that we don't find in this series, but there are there are certain things like a little bit of time manipulation. I try to interpret A Song of Ice and Fire, the series, as being just the the largest work in George R. R. Martin's long repertoire of mostly science fiction slash horror. Hmm, yeah. So he he comes from that background. Everything he's written up until this point, for the most part, has been in that realm. And so I think what he's doing on a whole is he's critiquing fantasy in a way and kind of having some fun with a lot of fantasy tropes about the pauper marries the princess and then they live happily ever after or whatever and saying well that never actually happens and you know it could be that uh, this is really just one big science fiction type thing where there's for whatever reason on this particular world or planet they seem to be stuck in some sort of feudalistic medieval mm. um, situation I think that I think that Martin likes to play with hybrids. Mm-hmm. And I think that like even his concept of like a werewolf or what a dwarf is like or what a tree spirit ought to look like. I think these are all hybrids. And I think that maybe the genre question could be thought of in those terms as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it would perfectly work with this theory that Martin has hybridized sci-fi and, and, and fantasy. Yeah. But kind of dis- disguised it as fantasy. What, what do you think mm-hmm. about that? Oh, I think that's, that's, uh, that's probably what's going on. I think that there's, you know, it's definitely a, a fantasy series on the surface level. I think that, but in the background, I think there's, there's some sci-fi going on there. So, Greg, with these podcasts, what I'll do is I'll do a synopsis of the chapter, Mm -hmm. but this is an overall view. So what I'm going to try to do, and who knows how well I'll be able to do this, but I'd like to do a synopsis of the first nine chapters. Mm -hmm. And so I'll try to do this in a single paragraph. And then if you're up for it, I'd like us to sort of take a deep dive into a few different characters, and I'd like to get your particular expertise on a few of these key characters and talk about maybe some of the the undergirding motivations. All right. All right, so here's my synopsis. After a member of the Night's Watch encounters a White Walker, he flees south, only to be executed by Ned Stark. We meet the Starks and the people in their orbit. We meet Ned, who grieves the passing of his surrogate father and laments his choice to become King Robert's right-hand man. We meet Catelyn, who pushes Ned to his southern duties and out of Winterfell. We meet John, who represents a constant discomfort for Catelyn and who is suffering for it. We meet Arya, who's chafing with gender expectations. We meet Tyrion, who is bright, curious, but wounded. We meet a young Bran, who is driven by his life as an able-bodied climber. We also learn that John Arryn it may have been murdered. When Bran discovers the twincest of Jamie and Cersei, Jamie tries to kill him. Meanwhile, in Essos... Daenerys Targaryen has been traded for the promise of an army by her brother. She is the child bride of the warlord Drogo and is learning to negotiate a new culture and her own enslavement. How did I do? That's really excellent. That's got to be so hard to do to summarize all of that in one paragraph. So my hat's off to you. (laughs) It's probably four paragraphs pressed together. But I think that in these first nine chapters, we've been introduced to a lot of the key characters 
especially in the north, mm-hmm. going to dis- eventually disperse and wander around and get in adventures, and then through their adventures and their eyes, will be introduced to Martin's world from each viewpoint. Yeah. Okay. So, Greg. I'm just going to ask you about a couple of characters here. And I'd like to hear, as someone who teaches psychology, some of your take on their character arcs. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to limit ourselves to this particular book and have, have a view to the larger series. But let's, let's go ahead and start with Arya. And I'm thinking about specifically her in the House of Black and White, where, and we see this in several different religions, that in order to, I don't know, achieve higher enlightenment, you cast off ego. Yes. And that's very much what is expected of her in the House of Black and White, where she she has to become no one. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that where... She, yeah, it's a very yeah Eastern kind of loss of self. Yes. Idea. Yeah. She's not, a, I don't know, I don't think she's actually able to do it. And I guess the question. No, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think she does ultimately. <laughs> right, and I think part of what keeps her ego intact is this vengeance list. This kill. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And she decides that she's going to use it as her almost evening prayers. Mm-hmm. It's like her own personal religion, her evening prayers, and it doesn't just remind her of the people she wants to kill. It kind of reminds her of her own identity. Yeah, I think that's uh that's interesting because it's it's almost like her identity is is basically wrapped up in this kind of higher purpose in a way. This idea of revenge or vengeance and getting back at all the people who have either wronged her or people she's loved over time. And even though she's changing as a person and growing over time, she kind of maintains that thread throughout all these different identities of getting revenge on, on yeah. these people she believed is is wronged her or who actually have. So this character that I'm going to bring up, uh, Sandor Clingane, the hound, he kind of couples with Arya for a time and becomes something of a mentor to her, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's some of my favorite parts of the, the series. Yes. Uh, and actually the, the television show too, which you know has its ups and downs, but I think that's some of the best writing both in the book and in the TV series. I have a question for a psychology professor on The Hound. Yeah. I know you've done a little bit of work with genetics relative to your other interests. Here's my question. We have this expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, um, which is kind of folk wisdom. Right. I wonder how much someone like The Hound, his motives and actions are predetermined either by his genetics or his upbringing or something like that. He's certainly a man of violence mm-hmm. and he's tortured, but he's in many ways, he's very honest about it. He's, you know, that, that he is a man of violence and he doesn't apologize for it. But I wonder if, I wonder how much choice he actually has in this and how much of a character like the Hound has been predetermined by either genetics or upbringing. That's a really good question. So the, the whole, uh, Gene versus environment debate is an ongoing thing in a lot of you know social and biological sciences. But it's, uh, I think, the one thing that most people would agree on is that it's a dynamic interaction between both of those things that unfolds over developmental time. And so, even though there are, 
is some evidence of heritability uh, of personality traits. Mm -hmm. And so that's been gleaned from things like twin studies that have, you know, compared monozygotic and dizygotic twins or identical and fraternal twins. And so we know that there's personality traits are at least partially heritable, uh, which would imply that there's some genetic uh, component. People's tendency towards aggression or their aggressiveness is, is, can be considered a personality trait, and it's at least partly heritable. However, your environment probably has a much larger role in influencing the extent to which you'll actually express that aggression or violent tendencies over time. So if you took the hound at birth and fostered him uh, at, I don't know, some place where, I don't know, there's very little violence, um, I think he'd be, you know, he'd still grow up to be larger than normal. So he could still, you know, use violence to his advantage in some situations. But uh, I don't think he would be nearly as violent. Or if maybe his older brother, Gregor, was not as violent or hadn't, you know, uh, allegedly put his face in a brazier when he was young. Yeah. You know, maybe he would have uh, turned out quite different, right? So a lot of it just has to do with how you're raised and, you know, what kind of environment you're exposed to, especially during your main developmental years, say, between, you know, birth and pubescence. Well, we know that at particular stages of childhood development, a, a sense of fairness is is really important. It's almost paramount. Mm-hmm. And... Both Arya and the Hound experience an extreme form of injustice at a very early age. Yeah. So with with the Hound, you know, he's he he's out of no fault of his own. His brother just decides to put his face in the fire, and and then he then he experiences his father really not punishing, and in fact making up this alternative story. So that there's a extreme injustice that really impacts his character. And Arya experiences both the death of the butcher's boy mm. and the death of her father for what she perceives to be a in severe injustice. And so for Arya in particular, but maybe the Hound also, their sense of vengeance is an outworking of this seminal injustice they've experienced. Yeah. So I think maybe they're kind of going on their own respective quests for justice in some way and, you know, trying to find peace through that. But I think one of the, one of the overarching themes of the series is that revenge, even though it's, it's fun to write about only causes more misery for most characters. Most of the time Hmm. only serves as, you know, an accelerant and basically just causing everyone more woe. I mean, I often view Martin's works having this pretty strong anti-war, uh, peacenik kind of, of themes to them. Really? So, yeah, I think, and this is, I think, one, one area in which the, the television show and the, the book series diverge, and that part of HBO's goal to, to get readers is it's got a show, uh, you know, a lot of blood and guts and, and warfare and so on. And I think in doing so, sometimes it misses the point in that it glorifies warfare and violence. Whereas in the book, I think almost every time you see violence or warfare, it's basically kind of a critique of human nature and showing just how stupid and senseless and pointless violence and warfare is because it only ends up kind of bringing people ultimately, you know, more misery. 
And I think the same goes for revenge and ideas of vengeance. And I think one of the main themes of the book is trying to discern if there is a dividing line between justice and vengeance. And I think it turns out that it all ends up being in the eye of the beholder in terms of what people's goals and motivations are. Hmm. Right. So, and it's, there's, there is no true dividing line. You can't really have really good justice where everyone's satisfied and all the wrongs are righted again. That world simply doesn't exist. Okay. Let me ask you this because, and, and, and it could be that I've misconstrued some of what you said, but it's got me thinking about Ned Stark's character Mm -hmm. because I think in many ways, well, if what you just said is right, and I have this inclination to align with what you've just said about Martin's critique of war, then I think a lot of fans have misread these characters and this story. Because I, I get the sense from a lot of fan discussion that the smarter characters are the characters that are the most ruthless. And in this case, the Lannisters maybe are are better at this or Littlefinger is better at this than someone like Ned Stark. But I wonder if Martin is trying to critique these very human but futile attempts at grabbing power through violent means. I wonder if a character like Ned, who is in all, in, you know, he's at least he's trying his best to be a good lord or to be a good knight or to be a good soldier or something like that, be a good hand of the king. Is he a flawed character? No, I think I think he's a flawed character. So I, I don't think there, <laughs> I don't even know if there are any ideal characters uh, in this book uh, or in the series. Um, I think he's a flawed character, you know, in, in many ways. So he's he's got such a stick up his ass about being dutiful, yes, uh, that he ends up kind of plunging the whole realm into a war that. Not necessarily avoidable, but it you know it could have it could have he had several opportunities to potentially save a lot of lives. So he's you know time and again I think sacrificing the greater good to preserve his own duty to try to be this like honest nice guy. But you know at, at the end you you can't be that person and be a successful or good hand of the king in a way. Let me let me. And, I, you know, at times I feel like I, I totally agree with you, but I'm going to push back a little bit just to see where the conversation goes. All right. All right. What if I were to say, no, Ned has it right. Ned, to live an honorable life and to be remembered as an honorable person is much more valuable than surviving a few more years and having history remember you as, you know, the guy that did what was politically expedient. I think maybe if the goal is to just live a few more years, that's a very individualistic way to look at this story. But if Ned is trying to do right by his ancestors and to do his best to bring honor to his tribe, then maybe he's the character that that wins. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the, in this series, is one of the roots of all evil is kind of this idea of in-group favoritism, of kind of being loyal to your own tribe or family or house or whatever. No one that, does that better than the Starks, right? Or yeah, that ends up that ends up uh, translating into kind of out-group 
uh, bias or outgroup prejudice and warfare. So if every, you know, if every house is always loyal to itself, that ends up kind of breeding competition in a way. Yeah. And if everyone's loyal to themselves or to their own group, then that's, that's going to lead to conflict. And I, I think, I mean, you know, that would be the, the overall critique of collectivism, right? I mean, yeah, in be- some ways, yeah. Be- because it's based on this in-group, out-group dynamic. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that struck me uh, when reading Game of Thrones for a, a second time was um, if we go back to uh, uh, the hound killing the butcher's boy, and, you know, Arya complains to Ned about this. And Ned does virtually nothing, right? He doesn't, mm. he's just like, oh, I'm sorry, you're, I don't, I don't even know if he said that, but he's just kind of like, yeah, sorry, your friend was killed. You know, a few chapters later, Robert Baratheon wants to, you know, kill Daenerys Targaryen. And he's like, whoa, 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 hold on. Right. You know, he even goes so far as to resign his position or offer his resignation as Anne of the King. And that's probably only because Daenerys is probably a relative of his. And he probably knows that. Or it's a class thing, you know. Yeah, that, that's, yes, that could also be it. Yeah, where she's important, whereas the butcher's boy is not. And I think a lot of people get lulled into this false sense that, you know, Ned cares for the children. He's always, you know, putting the children first. He didn't give, you know, two cents or two, you know, he didn't give anything about about the the butcher's boy. So I think he's, he's also kind of a little bit too, you know, part of duty and honor is kind of sticking to the rules. And sometimes those rules or laws might be in and of themselves unjust, Mm -hmm. right? So then you get in the conflict between human ethics and the ethics of, you know, law or society. And when those two things are in conflict, which do you choose? And Ned tends to choose, I think, you know, the law of the land. Mm-hmm. Now, I think to support your view of Ned, to undermine my suggestion, if you look at what happens to Winterfell as the consequence of, of what Ned does, or the, the inactions that, that Ned takes, he does not leave his tribe in a very good position politically. Right. So if we're judging this by the outcome what we might call consequentialism from a philosophical point of view. If we judge this by the amount of good that is brought to the realm, the Ned is a failure mm. because his own tribe is torn up and Winterfell is burned down and all of this business happens. Yeah, it's, I mean, he, there's so many things he could have done in terms of counterfactual thinking, in terms of choices he made, like, you know, he could have said no to going south with King Robert. I don't know how that would have turned out if you say no to the king. Or if he just, you know, when he's sitting on the throne, his hand of the king, hmm. when Robert's alive but still injured, he basically listens to these pleas from the, the riverlands that are allegedly getting raided by the mountain. And he immediately just says to Beric Dondarrion, form up this group of riders and go out and take care of this. And that's, you know, one of the things that ends up starting the the War of Five Kings. You know, maybe if he had been a little bit, I don't know, wiser, maybe seen through that or, I don't know, he's just so, he's, he's just kind of a, a black and white, right or wrong kind of thinker. Maybe that works better as, I'm thinking about if he had stayed in the North, let's just imagine a scenario. Yeah. Ned Stark stays in the North. He doesn't become Hand of the King. He stays in the North. And he just keeps on going business as usual, which was his inclination, by the way. That's what he wanted to yeah, do. Yeah. Yep. 
And, you know, maybe he fares pretty well as the warden of the North. And maybe it's just the job description that he's not suited for. I, I really do want to push back against this Ned being unwise. I think early in the story, he's portrayed as a very wise father figure. Mm-hmm. But someone who is, he's almost, are you familiar with the Peter Principle? No. Okay, the P- the Peter Principle, and I'll probably butcher it, but the Peter pr- Principle is that if you do really well at your job, you'll probably get promoted. And you may not be well suited for the next job description to which you're promoted. Mm-hmm. And so th- the job, if, if you do well, you'll probably earn your way out of the job that suited you. And then you'll stop being promoted at the next level, at some point at the next level, because you're not well suited for the job you're in. It's almost like Ned does really well as a soldier, as a warden of the North, and he gets promoted and he gets promoted to a job that he's really not good at. Right. Yeah. 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 I shouldn't I shouldn't say he's it's not so much he's making unwise decisions. It's more like he's kind of a fish out of water and he's over his head and he's dealing with these political backstabbers now, which he hadn't you know, had to deal with as simply the head of House Stark and Warden of the North. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just is this, you know, weird kind of mismatch. But, I mean, he, it's not like things at Winterfell are necessarily perfect. I mean, we know, unlike the show, in the book, Ned and his brother never speak when his brother comes home from the Night's Watch to uh, attend that um, the Harvest Festival. In fact, they have to speak through Maester Lewin. So it's almost like there's this some sort of sibling thing that happened at some point where they stopped talking to each other. You know, that's really interesting. It only comes down as a common courtesy because the king's there. So I think that at some point in the past, they must have had some sort of huge argument or something to the point where they won't even talk to one another. And that also, you know, makes me wonder why, you know, why is um, Benjen so messing with Jon Snow to try to get him to join the watch? And then when he gets there... Just kind of like, well, thanks for joining. I'm heading north of the wall now. Good luck. <laughs> it's just, a, there's a weird family dynamic going on there. Well, okay, so that's interesting. So I hadn't, I'd never given this any thought before, but you're right that in these early chapters, we never see a conversation between Benjen and Ned. Reading. Yeah, they're not backslapping each other. They don't even talk to one another. And, you know, you know that Benjen's been up at the wall for years and years in years and probably only visits on these, you know, special occasions, if that. So it's what, what was the falling out between them? Huh? Did it have to do with these, you know, larger things you learn about later on, like with Liana or who Liana's Hmm. child or children are all that stuff. You know, that's interesting. I wonder, so I've been thinking about this for a grand total of 30 seconds. So (laughs) who knows if it's right or not, but we know that Ned was fostered at the Erie. Robert is much more of a brother than his natural born brothers. And it could be that he just doesn't have that sense of camaraderie with Benjen that he, that he he doesn't have the history with him. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. I'm going to ask you a question and you can, you can choose to answer it however you want. All All right. Of all the characters in all of, of all the series, the character that your friends and family think you are, but the character that deep down inside, you know, you really are. Wow. Um, I would say, um, I think most people would maybe see me as um, probably Maester Marwyn. Oh, really? 
<laughs> All right, remind us about Maester Marwyn because he's actually kind of a character of intrigue. Yeah, so his, I don't resemble him in terms of his physical description because he's kind of this uh, like ham-fisted, really strong and brusque maester, which is kind of unusual for a, a maester. But I think I'm similar to him, or people would see me as similar to him uh, in terms of the fact that he's traveled the world. And so I guess compared to most people in my family and, and social network, I've done a lot more traveling. Marwin's a little bit like the Indiana Jones of the Maesters. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a good way to kind of summarize his character. So he's, he's been all over the place. And he's also befriended people from all levels of society. And so that's, that's kind of how I think people see me as being as well. So I don't really mm. fit into like one particular social clique. I have uh, friends from all different walks of life from all over the place, from all different backgrounds. And I like uh, reading and I like mystery. And he seems to be, you know, just really interested in things related to the occult, which I, I think most of that stuff is baloney, but it's, it's interesting to read about. Yeah, so, he's not uh, as close-minded as some of these other maesters in that they, they've already made up their mind about the way that the world works, whereas Marwin is kind of open to some of the weirder stuff people are talking about. Yeah, so he's very open-minded, I would say, and willing to indulge in these kind of strange ideas and to travel to strange places. It's so about what people think you are. So, so, but yeah, I think I'm inside. I'm probably an even more obscure character. I'm probably more like Roderick the Reader, <laughs> who's basically just, <laughs> especially right now, I'm just kind of holed up in my my condo here with a lot of good books, just trying to read them all and, and you know, and anxiously anticipating new books from my favorite authors to come out. <laughs> all right. So something that you've written recently, something that you've read recently. Well, something I'm, I'm working on right now is in the fall, I collected a bunch of data on how people perceive the personality traits of characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, both in terms of the TV show and the books. I got people to fill out this survey from three different uh, subreddits that yeah. uh, relate to A Song of Ice and Fire. And I recently gave a talk uh, back in uh, February on the findings from that research. And it's really interesting because I, I ended up basically asking people to rate basically every major character Hmm. in terms of uh, these nine personality traits. And I'm going to be sharing the results of that study on the three subreddits where I collected the data in the coming days or weeks. By the time this particular podcast drops, it will be published in that case. How will Problem. it? So uh, people can go to um, the, the three subreddits where I collected data are the uh, Game of Thrones subreddit, which mostly is geared towards the TV show. Yeah. There's uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, or the acronym thereof, for, there's that website. And then there's Cure, A Song of Ice and Fire, which is mostly for book readers and is a much smaller subreddit. And their tagline is, we do not show. Uh, so they don't really welcome show discussions on there. But anyway, I'll be, I'll be posting the results to... Uh, Okay. All three of those. And basically you can get, uh, see how your views of a character's personality match up with the average 
readers or viewers personality of uh, a given character. And we rate them on both uh, kind of positive traits and on negative traits. One of the things I'm interested in on a psychological level is looking at the extent to which people project their own personalities onto characters. So I had people rate their personalities in addition to their characters. And people do statistically significantly project their own personalities onto other characters. In other words, let's say that you're high on extroversion. Let's say you're a super extrovert. You're more likely to see characters across the board on average as more extroverted uh, than, than other people on average. Uh, same goes for, um, let's say that you're highly Machiavellian. In other words, you really like to manipulate people, or at least that's how you would describe yourself. You're more likely to see other characters as more Machiavellian than the average person. Huh. And, uh, you know, I'm particularly interested in some of these like dark, darker traits, so-called darker traits like uh, Machiavellianism. And as you might imagine, you know, the most, some of the most Machiavellian characters are characters like Littlefinger and Barry's. Uh, and so on. So people, I mean, generally people gave character ratings in the same ways that you might expect. In fact, the other question that I'm interested in as a psychologist is the degree of consensus. In other words, are different people viewing characters in more or less the same way? And on average, that was also the case, and for the most part, significantly so. And that's that's just, you know, the sign of a good author in a way, right? So an author's job in a way, is to kind of give you an impression of a character's personality traits. And the way they do that is by making them say certain things or do certain actions that relate back to that trait in some way. So in other words, you're able to kind of glean a person or a character's underlying personality trait by these little tidbits that the author's leaving you. And in general, people form consensus that's pretty consistent across these character traits. Well, and I wonder if... I mean, how does that relate to just the construction of empathy? I mean, if you think of a character that people really like a lot, like Tyrion or Arya or Sam Tarly or something like that, if the author is doing his job, then these characters that are driving the narrative are characters we relate to. Mm -hmm. There's something about that process wherein either we want to find ourselves in that character or we want that character to express things of our idealized self. Like we, we like it when Tyrion says the witty things that that we wish we would have said. So we almost become intertwined with these characters in a few ways. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? That's a really good point. I hadn't really gotten into the kind of the extent to which people empathize with the characters on that uh, level and whether or not they really want to see themselves in the characters and, you know, does it depend on whether they view the character as a, you know, quote unquote, good guy or quote unquote, bad guy, even though, as we all know, in the books, they're almost all characters are various shades of gray. But that's that's a really good question. I, I, that's something I should probably follow up with in the future is looking at this as kind of the degree of to which people empathize or don't empathize with a certain character's plight and so on. And now Steve and I talk about Ned's choices. Dog Breeds, the Rocky franchise, and Steve insults the city of Philadelphia. Steve, we're wrapping up season one. Here we are. Batman's dead. Batman is dead. We saw nudity and dragons in the same scene. 
Yeah, yeah, that's and that's good for that's good for everybody, I guess. <laughs> it really gives it gives almost everyone something to enjoy. Right, and again, I mean, it's it's that little bomb that heals the wounds from Ned's beheading, right? Yeah, so, who ca- who cares that Ned died? Everybody's just like reeling. I can't believe it. I mean, right out the gate. Ooh, look at that. <laughs> so here's what we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna do a little bit of listener feedback, and then we're gonna play one of the Game of Thrones favorite games, and that is, what should Ned have done differently? I think I've got a different take on this than most people, but uh, th- all right. So we'll we'll tease that at the end of the episode and end of the wrap up pod or whatever we're calling this. Um. Okay, let's get to some listener feedback. Do you want you want me to go first? Or you want to go first, Steve? Uh you go first. All right. This is from Sandra in Austin. Um, Hello, Sandra. Thank you for uh, your correspondence. Yeah. It's either Sandra or Sandra, and I know it probably makes a difference, and I just Yeah, don't well, know. so let, let's try that again. Uh, hello, Sandra. Uh, thank yeah. you for your correspondence. So you can just, once you find out, you yeah. can uh, just pick whichever pronunciation I did correctly. Yeah. This is, from, this is from Sandra in Ouston. She says, in your book, you suggest that Miri Mazdur is something of a third wave feminist champion and that she is justified in betraying Danny. In your view, does this make Danny an antagonist or an antihero? All right, so I, I I do give a couple different categories for trying to understand Miri Mazdur. I think one thing that Aaron and I say is that maybe she's a trickster. It's like a you know the the god Loki is a trickster. Um, and to be clear, this is like that tribal Rizzo. Yeah, that's right. Okay, right. yeah, there you go. And the other thing that we say is that maybe if we if we're looking at the story with modern eyes, Miri is maybe a I don't know modern or advanced or truer feminist than Danny is because. She's ready to burn the whole thing down. She's like, look, your son was going to be the the stallion that mounts the world. That sounds pretty bad for people well, like me. it depends if you're the stallion. Not right, so yeah. It's all good, perspective. Good for the stallion, bad, bad for, for the, the world. <laughs> yeah, bad for the world. So like It's all about location. <laughs> it's, it's all about location. Uh, so if you live in the world, uh, maybe the stallion who mounts the world is not a great idea. And uh, in this case, maybe Miri Mazdur does everyone a favor by essentially tricking Danny and getting rid of the the, the fetus, the weird dra- half dragon fetus or whatever. And I'm your fetus. I'm on fire with your desire. That actually really works well for this Targaryen <laughs> baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna be, I'm working on an entire uh, parody song um, for, for new, this. Uh. New theme for season two. Um, <laughs> it's just Steve and I <laughs> doing parody songs of all of our favorite 80s hits. Right, yeah. And of course, there will be uh, Cruel Winter, the Bananarama <laughs> jam that's going to be coming. Right. Uh, you know, Pyromancer, Arson for Money, that, that kind of thing. Be your Pyromancer. <laughs> A mancer of pyro. <laughs> I'm into it. Um, hmm. 
All right. So does this make Danny an antagonist or an anti-hero? I'm not sure if either of those. I don't think I'd use either of those categories. Sandra, Sandra, Sandy, 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 um, Sandra D. I don't, I think Danny is sometimes a good guy and sometimes she's a bad guy. And I think that a lot of characters, you could say the same thing for a lot of characters in this show. Uh, at different points, they're going to be good guys or bad guys. And it will depend on perspective and it will depend on where they are in the narrative because Martin likes to create these moral forks where you only have two bad answers and you have to choose the least bad of the two answers. So I don't think she's an anti-hero. I think an anti-hero is someone who's sort of a bad guy that you have empathy with. Like maybe the Hound or something. Maybe Jamie would be more of an anti-hero. I think that Danny in this case is heroic at many points in this first season. And then when she burns Miri Mazdur alive, she's probably... Not not heroic, <laughs> something something other than heroic. Um, I don't well, know. I mean, unless you know, you prevent one stallion from mounting the yeah. world, and it's like, and then you go, well, this person, you know, maybe maybe on some level, the world needs to be mounted. And Danny's like, if we start wiping out every potential stallion that's going to mount the world, we might wipe out the the good stallion. That's a little more gentler in its mounting. And then if somebody like Miriam Asdur is just out there willy-nilly killing fillies, then we've got to, um, you know, we've got to fix that. I think most stallions view the world as a place without necessary structure, or at least it's not structured the way that they want it. And they think, okay, let's mount this thing to fix it. And and it could be that, and I think that justifies a lot of filly willy-nilly. Well, so, but let's, but if we put it in perspective, let's say like the Italian stallion, right? So the Italian stallion, you know, Polly was very upset when the Italian stallion and, and his sister Adrian had relations, right? But as we learned through the narrative, how important that relationship was. So, I mean, if you look at it in a vacuum, right? If you look at it just at that moment, you know, uh, if, if it were up to Polly at that moment, he would have certainly uh, burned everything down like yeah. a Miriam Asdur. But like, fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, right? So, I mean, there's just, we just don't know. We'll never know if Miriam Asdur was really going to be the Polly in this uh, particular story. I think you're right about that. Like and if she had spent more time whenever like Danny would like say she's gonna do something, go, What are you crazy? And then I think people would have been like, Oh, okay, that's you know, I mean she's asking the right questions. Um, you know, there's a there's a certain whimsy and there's a lot of spittle. Like, I mean, I think there's that grounds it a little bit. Like, you know, it's about approach, I think. Rocky, the original Rocky, very underrated love story. Uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I've actually had uh an ongoing argument with a friend of mine who insists that I am wrong, that it's a love story. And I said, I pointed to, I said, well, I mean, you can take my word for it, or you can listen to Stallone when he speaks of it as being a love story that he wrote. I think (laughs) it's a love story. I think it's a love story in a few levels. I think it's a love story between Adrian and Rocky, of course. Sure. I think it's also sort of almost a love letter to the city of Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, so I think that there's a, something of a love affair between, really, you know, Rocky is something of an avatar for a, a certain moment in time for that city. 
sure, Philadelphia is not smart. That's fine. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know about that man. I some some of those turtle jokes that Rocky makes That's they're true. pretty clever. Yeah, you know what? Fix your bell, folks, all right? <laughs> uh and as far as a, a sports story goes, I can't wait for the next uh, letters from from the fans. All <laughs> Sandy from Philadelphia. What's the matter, you? You know, I can't wait for this whole thing. No, they will not send letters, Steve. You, you will. <laughs> you will be murdered. That, that's yeah, gonna I'm going to get batteries thrown at me at work. <laughs> uh, and as far as it being like a, a sports, I love story, Philadelphia. I've 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 never been there, and I can't wait to go. <laughs> Also a love story between Rocky and the thumbs of gamblers. He refuses to break the thumbs, yeah, Steve. Yeah. Well, and, when, and, then it, and the love story just keeps perpetuating, even though it becomes much more boxing-centric. By the time you get to four, when Polly falls in love with his robot. Um... <laughs> oh, the robot. I, I'll be honest, man. When I first saw that in the theater... I thought that robot was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Sure, and so did Polly. Polly, give Polly credit. He also became this hacker. Like he reprogrammed this robot to be a woman. Very, yeah, very which is underrated narrative arc with Polly. Very yeah, like so, so. Polly is a genius, but he has to find the proper motivation. And if it comes to the point where he's like, maybe I could have sex with this robot. Like suddenly, then he goes full on Goodwill Hunting and uh, <laughs> just rewires it. It's the inspiration he needed. You know, oddly, Steve, the rest of our questions all relate to Rocky, the Rocky <laughs> franchise, and and some of the uh, the non canonical Rocky material, the, some of the fan fan theories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. That's that makes sense. All right, this is a question for you, Steve, and this is okay. This is this the was... favorite. <laughs> Wait, what's your problem? <laughs> this is my, this is my favorite question we got. Uh, Robbie from Grand Rapids asks, Steve, so far in the short run of this podcast, you've admitted to drowning a puppy and pretending to be friends with people while you gossip behind their backs. In addition, you claim to have rewatched the Joffrey slap scene several times. Are you a sadist or, these are your two options, or... Is sadism your stage persona? <laughs> oh wow! Okay, that's incredible. Um, it's you know, Robbie, you've given me a lot to think about, um, and I appreciate you challenging me to really do a little bit of you know internal inventory. Um, I don't consider myself a sadist. Now, to be clear, the dog lived, all right, and and I believe I thought I was I was helping. <laughs> Uh, i i look back now that puppy was gonna grow up to be hitler (laughs) we just don't know we just don't know i'm the miriam asgore in this situation you you absolutely are for sure um yeah and that ended up being the retriever mix that uh, mounted the world and i hope you're all happy that my mom saved it no i look i i i I'm 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 not a perfect person, uh, <laughs> to be clear. Let, let's let's look. At, let's take each one of these things on its own, right? No, nope, no, no. Let's let's boil this down. You only have two options, Steve. You're either a sadist, or or let me. Uh, she says, or say, is sadism your stage persona? Well, here's the thing. 
this is and this is where you've where you've set yourself in a very interesting situation. This may be a Schrodinger's cat type situation, right? If I say that Satan is my stage persona, then I've revealed that that I'm not a sadist, right? But that could be part of my sadistic nature. If I say that I'm a sadist, <laughs> I have to say it. If I either if I am a sadist, I have to question whether or not I want to admit it. And then if I say I'm a sadist, that could still be me doing my stage persona because this is the medium in which we're interacting. We're not having, you know, I have made no eye contact with you, Robbie. I don't even know if that's your real name. So I don't know if Robbie is your stage persona. What you've done is you've created a scenario that is very fascinating. And I'm, it's, it's almost impossible for me to answer truthfully because the truth will also be considered false. Isn't Andrew Dice Clay, I mean, I think he's the example. He was a sadist as his stage persona. Mm-hmm. But that's got it. There's got to be part of him that is that person. Sure. And I think there's also a certain sadistic quality, especially if you know that there are people that don't like this stage persona. The sadist, the true sadist inside gets to gets to amplify this sort of mock sadism to create true sadism. Wow, man. Robbie, you've given us uh, you've given us just a really rich conversation topic. And I want to thank you. Yeah, And I'm a, I, ultimately, I'm, I'm, I'm a very gentle person. Mm hmm. That doesn't mean I'm not sadistic. It just means that there's a certain slowness to it. Steve Osborne, the gentle sadist. <laughs> wow. Okay, I got to go work on my bio. <laughs> okay, this is for me. Um, Nick in Natal, Brazil. So Nick from Natal. If you could pick one piece of Game of Thrones memorabilia from the show, what would it be? Um, I'm not a big memorabilia guy, Nick. Uh, really? yeah, not not really, because I guess not. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen you with a tchotchke or anything. No, I wouldn't go out of my way for memorabilia. You know what I would like though? I like uh, I like art and I like illustration. And if I could have some storyboards, uh, you know, like an artistic rendering. Like a flannel graph from uh, Sunday school? Like a, fa yes. With a Game of Thrones flannel graph? I would like a flannel graph of Miri Mazdur. You realize I just made us a million dollars. You're going to want to edit this out of the podcast because anybody else that hears this is going to immediately run and make uh, a flannel graph. For a Game tiny of little baby, tiny little half dragon baby. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, you know, with maggots and it goes oh. in and out of the wigwam. Just a whole flannel graph. Like, we can make it. I mean, why aren't we making flannel graph for everything? Lost Boys flannel graph. Uh, man, this is this is a Golden big... Girls flannel graph. Nick, again. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. Uh, yeah, some storyboards would be would be fun. I'd have them framed. I'd put them up. That would be super fun. Um, oh, yeah, that would be cool. I could, see, I could see you. Yeah, you're more of a, um, like, so, I mean, the idea of memorabilia, right? Like, I guess the thought behind it is one is there's a nostalgia factor. There's a it sort of connects you to the to the fiction in sort of a uh, a more tangible way, right? Like we have a um, I have a Kill Bill like a, a mock Kill Bill sword. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. You've got the Hattori Hanzo. I have a mock Hattori Hanzo that that it's Bud Sword with the with the full. Oh, the, so uh, this is not the sword that if you meet God along the road, God right, will right, be right, cut. Right. That's not no, this is happen. but this has the it has the inscription from uh from Bill to Bud. Oh, 
Right, right. Good. I, I like that idea. But it's sitting in my closet. It's not like it's on display. See, that's the thing about memorabilia. I do have one little bit of memorabilia, Steve. Yeah. I think it's the only thing I have. I've got a trailer reel, like the actual, it's an actual reel in a little, you know, uh, movie tin or whatever of the trailer for Star Wars. And uh, I like I like having it. I looked it up on eBay to see if I could sell it once and... It's really not worth that much money. <laughs> and I can't watch it. I don't have a reel-to-reel uh, movie projector. Uh, so it does me no good at all. No. no but what about that. you? If if you could have a piece of memorabilia from the show, is Ned's that something head. you'd want? <laughs> you want Ned's head. Yeah, and I want it out in my front yard on a spike. Wow. It, because you know that they had to create. You're not actually saying you want Sean Bean to be beheaded. No, but I mean, well, okay. Um, I mean, it would have a different sort maybe, of value. Maybe, maybe let me get into my stage persona. <laughs> <laughs> All right, another question for you. Sure. Um, this is from Ian in Hamburg, and I'm assuming this is Hamburg, Germany, because I don't, I don't know of any other Hamburgs. I'm sure that there are. My son-in-law, 19 years old, is a big stand-up comedy nerd. Mm. He moved to Sausalito near SF just before COVID and hasn't been able to see any performances yet. But once comedians are performing again, which venues would you recommend? Feel free to mention your own shows. That's really right. kind of Ian that to is very kind. allow you to promote. That is very kind. I would say, I mean, if he's Sausalito, I mean, obviously there's a lot of great, like if everything, let's just say everything opens up and everything's fine. Of course, you're going to want to go to the Punchline and Cobbs uh, in San Francisco. And I think, I think it's going to be even, it has the potential to be even more special when everything reopens, because I think we're you're going to see talent that n- might, be doing bigger shows doing some of these smaller venues mm. so they may you may have an opportunity to see some uh, some acts that you might not normally see there also they may be bringing like features that are uh, that are really special as well that are headline quality but then uh, assuming that these places come back there's a lot of places that i don't know if they're going to come back right like a lot of these littler spots like, like i would have said starline social club in oakland is fantastic but i don't i, I think i heard that they're they might they might be closing i don't know oh. quote me on that but oh. uh same thing with and like then the setup is a fantastic uh little basement show and again but that's gonna be a tough one because it's so small and i don't know what social distancing that's rules called the be. setup where's that located it's below a uh a, like a tavern in it but like if you look up setup comedy club like it actually has it like they've done a really good job of creating is they that in Oakland like a, or uh, San Francisco? Oh, they, they, they treat it like a real comedy club. So the setup is kind of its own uh-huh. entity. I'm hoping that all these things survive. And in, 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 like, I mean, currently you can go to the North Bay and there are some good outdoor shows. I have a show in Healdsburg that's a kind of a quasi monthly. It's just we're, we're kind of waiting to see what things turn out with curfew and everything. But that's at Coyote Sonoma. That's an outdoor show. It's, it's And what's it's, what's that show called? Or does it have a name? Or? It's called The Comedy Roundabout. All right. And you're but you are also affiliated with Cobbs, right? Yeah. Cobbs and uh, Punchline. Sure. OK. And those are both in the city. Yes. All right. Live well, um, Nick. Uh, no, no, that wasn't Nick. That was uh, Ian. Ian, tell your son-in-law he's got a, a number of options 
uh, fingers crossed we can get this get this all going again. Yes, yes, yes. One of the rare times, uh, who would have thought that Dayton would be a hotter place for stand-up <laughs> than, than San Francisco? I, I I got to see a really great show that Chappelle put on. Uh, yeah, I heard about that. It was great. Yeah, uh, just just one of the best shows I've ever... Because it broke into a concert. It's like Quest Love and uh, Common, and a bunch of people were performing uh, in addition to the stand-up and... Anyway, that's not what you care about, uh, Ian. You didn't ask me. You asked Steve. All right. This is a question for me. Um, this is from Olivia in Saskatoon, which Steve is in Saskatchewan. Do you know that? Do you do you know Saskatoon? Have you ever been that's to great. Saskatoon? I've never been to Saskatoon. I love the idea that, that Saskatchewan uh, begets Saskatoon. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, some people would say that the people of Saskatoon are really, really the heart of Saskatchewan. H- how do you feel about that? Is that is that too bold of a statement, Steve? Um, I, yes. You you think that I'm not I'm not doing right by the the people the, the other people the other fine folk of Saskatchewan? Yeah, like I mean, what are the other areas within Saskatchewan that Saskatoon casts a large shadow over? It's, I'm telling you, there are literally millions of miles, <laughs> <laughs> mostly north. All right, uh, Olivia asks, uh, "What is one of the book? Uh, oh, sorry, what is the one book difference or detail that you would have liked to see incorporated into the show?" Um. I'm going to go out on a limb. More nudity. I I ha- I really ha- I have a good answer to this, but I feel like it would ruin season two for for Steve. So, oh. Oh. um, yeah. what what I'll do is I will um I'll edit in my answer uh, after I, Steve I, and I are done recording. And then I'll insert it so that I'm not uh, deflowering Steve's virgin ears. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, y'all. It's Anthony from one second ago. Here's what I think. I think they could have brought Lady Stoneheart in really late in the game, like season seven or eight. And I think it could have been the wedge in between Brienne and Jamie. I think it would have really complicated the the Jamie and Brienne relationship and maybe given Jamie a, a more satisfying outcome than season eight did. Uh, I, I would have loved to have seen that. Uh, I think if you brought her in like season eight, that would have been a shocker because I think everyone who really wanted Lady Stoneheart would have already kind of thought, well, they're not going to do it. There's no way they're going to bring in a new storyline at this stage. Uh, if you brought her in really late, I think it would have shocked everybody and enhanced everyone's enjoyment of the Brienne and Jamie tension. So that's my answer. Thank you for not being the stallion that mounts my ears. <laughs> that actually wouldn't be a bad tagline for you either. <laughs> His comedy is the stallion that mounts your ears. <laughs> You're, I, I really think, uh, you know, let, let's just hope that uh, COVID uh, dissipates and your career uh, advances to a Netflix special. 
<laughs> the that gentle w- sadist. <laughs> that would be that would be your first special, and then the second special would be the stallion that mounts your ears. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very good. And then, like, and and as we talked about off air, and then if I have an opportunity to make a third, it will just be a shot for shot remake of the Paul Lind Halloween special. <laughs> um. All right. Uh, this is the last question. This is from Wanda in Boston. Uh, this is for you, Steve. Oh, okay. I live in a small apartment in the city. My husband wants to get a dog. Oh. She thinks, oh no, sorry. He thinks that we should get a small, smart dog that we can train. I think it would be better to get a big, stupid, lazy dog that just wants to sleep all day. What would you recommend? Well, you're in a small apartment. Um, I'm not sure what your uh, outdoor potty situation is like. Uh, you live in Boston from what I gather from, uh, and so it's going to get, you're going to have cold winters. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to have you focus on potty. Focus on the potty situation. Uh-huh. Small dogs tend to uh, be a little uh, more hesitant to to take to potty training, for one. Uh, they especially don't like it uh, they tend to not like it if it's uh, inclement weather cold rainy if you got your snow situation yeah um so that's a chore uh your big dogs tend to be a little more uh a little more down for that right and like to the degree that uh your your husband says hey let's get something dumb even the dumb it tends to be like the dumber quote bigger dogs understand the notion of hey i have to go to the bathroom i should go do that whereas little dogs like i have to go to the bathroom I hate you. And that's like, that's the only thing (laughs) that they think. So I would definitely, if you have the space in the apartment, again, I don't know how big the apartment is. Sound like it was kind of smallish. Um, If you could find something, maybe like, maybe you need something a little more mid range, right? Like you can get um, uh, a standard poodle that maybe isn't one of the, one of the large, like maybe on the, on the, the smaller end standard poodles, great dog. They're goofy. And so it's uh, poodles, a very smart dog. Poodles, a very smart dog. I know this guy wants a dumb dog, but you, but, but the beauty of poodles is there's a goofiness to them that almost give the illusion of dumbness. Mm. <laughs> um, so that might be what you want. You want something that feigns stupidity, but deep down they know what's going on. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. Right. And they, and they are a little more active. They're a little playful, uh, I'm, I'm pretty pro poodle when it comes to that kind of thing. I know that poodles get a bad rap because you, you often see them in their continental cut, which is more of your show cut. And people go, what am I going to do with that? Well, you don't have to do that. You can, you can teddy bear, you can do all kinds of different things with your poodle, but nothing beats a small dog. I mean, I got a small dog. You put it in a little carrier and you're walking around with it in your purse or whatever. Uh, there's something about that that does, um, kind of tether the line between dominance and, um, dainty. Do people that put the dogs in the purses, do they have a little liner in the purse? Because I don't want that dog's Mm -hmm. little anus near my valuables. Yeah, you need a piss purse. You need a purse that you don't like so much. I see. So, I mean, you can, I mean, if your dog is trained, like most dogs don't want to, don't want to sit in their own filth. And so, and you can diaper it up if you're really feeling it. I mean, I'm not, uh, I mean, there's lots of options. I get it. I mean, I understand what you're saying. I would have liked to see some of this incorporated into the show. I would have liked to see one of the dire wolves kind of <laughs> going like a, going through a heat cycle. I want to see one of the dire wolves just just good for nothing lazy dog that sleeps all day. And, yeah, just, and one of the kids is just like, "Why did I get the dud? This, this dog sucks." <laughs> that's right. 
Well, that's true. I remember I remember I had a friend who had a, a we got a dog at the Humane Society and there was a litter of these dogs and you know that sort of matched what he was going for it looked like a tough dog and he wanted a tough dog and so we got him and uh, and he would he would feed it malt liquor and uh, um, he would not train it and blow marijuana smoke in his face and the dog was really dumb I know go figure and and then one day like this is right after graduation a, a another friend of ours had graduated he was he had his own like contracting business i guess and so yeah. he came to the to the house he had been hired by his parents to to do some some work on like a fence or something and he had a dog that was clearly from the same litter and it was like it was amazing it followed him it it would sit and wait and you follow all these commands and and uh my buddy goes you mean Man. it wasn't dumbed up on malt liquor and marijuana <laughs> right so my buddy so i have two friends one that owned the dog and the other one that was over visiting and uh, he go at the my buddy owned the dog goes oh man i got the dumb one and, then my, <laughs> and my buddy without missing a beat goes no 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 your dog got the dumb one <laughs> so good so good see that see that's what we should have been on the show that'd be great that's perfect steve that's all for our questions all right well i hope i hope we've we've i've learned a lot yeah no this is about really myself <laughs> so we're going to play a game called What Should Ned Have Done Differently? My synopsis of Ned's story arc is that he goes south with Robert to become his hand. He tries to solve the murder of John Arryn, who is something of a father figure to him. He finds out, and he also finds out that Cersei is banging her brother. Mm-hmm. And then he tells Cersei that he knows, thinking that Cersei's going to run, and she doesn't run. Uh, he asked Littlefinger for help um, to try to, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, not make J- bastard Joffrey the next king. And then he gets thrown in jail, and eventually he falsely confesses to Robert's murder, and he gets his head chopped off. Yeah. All right, so, Steve, here's your question. What should Ned have done differently? A, don't go south with Robert. B, don't try to solve the murder. C. Don't tell Cersei you know her secret. Uh, D. Don't ask Littlefinger for help. E. Don't falsely confess to Robert's murder. Or F. Some other option or combination of the above. Um, I think. Uh, I mean, if I'm going to pick one, I'm probably going to go. Don't. Don't tell Cersei you know. That feels like it feels like too much too soon. Yeah, you know, and and I think I mean, see, Ned just Ned operates on this. Well, everybody would probably do, but like he he's he's intelligent enough to say, well, this if this if I knew this, I would probably do this. And so, but he but he's it seems a little naive. Well, famously, he's he's really against uh, murdering Danny because she's a child, and he's like. Right. Robert, we don't murder children, all right? Wait until she grows up. She's a problem. We'll kill her when she's an adult. He doesn't like killing kids. Uh, and so, famously, he he tells Cersei, thinking that he can protect her children, who he thinks Robert will most certainly murder when he finds out that they're not his kids. Right. So, he tells Cer- Cersei, thinking Cersei's thinking... That she wants to protect her children at all costs, right? At all, at all costs. costs. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And yeah, you're saying so, maybe don't don't make that play. 
Right. It feels like there's a, I mean, it, it, there's a, it feels like that could be a play to be made later, but that, uh, if it, he just sort of went all in on it, right? Like, I feel like he wasn't, um, he wasn't slow playing this very well. I think he mm-hmm. kind of thought like, okay, well, I have this information. I know this children are at stake, blah, and like, he just sort of played it out in like one linear plan. Mm-hmm. And, and in step-by-step step, that started to fall apart. And so he didn't have any contingencies it seemed like. Right. And so then now he gets yeah. all of that sort of snowballs to the point where he gets to the spot where he's like, all right, well, look, I either got to confess for this and hope that I get mercy or um or i I mean like because at that point like he was i feel like he was dead anyway right like so it's i know that like owning up to the you know falsely taking the uh the blame for the for the death of of robert seemed like when you look at it you know at the time it's like it's shocking he gets beheaded but then you kind of take some time to digest it and go i think that was he's that was happening no matter what i think that w- that's my answer i think that i would go with e don't falsely confess i feel like hey ned be true to yourself you're a man of honor die with honor mm-hmm. don't try to play the game too late you know yeah you're the kind of guy that's gonna get murdered anyway <laughs> Right. <laughs> Just be true to yourself all the way to the end. And and I feel like like I, I agree with Kat that he's got to go sell. He's got to be the hand of the king because if he's not, after he's been asked, eventually there's going to be enmity between the south and the north. And they've got to kind of try to strengthen their ties with the south. Mm-hmm. And I think he's got to die. I don't think that there's another option. Right. I mean, and that's the problem, right? It's like, I think what, you, what we see is Ned becomes almost a, um, an entry point for us into the like, oh, there's a lot going on in this game. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and a guy like Ned just might not be very long for the game is what it looks. Cause I mean, in order for him to survive, like you look at like the people that he's sort of trying to get counsel from or, or not even counsel, but trying to be like we get you know, the little finger situation and then you have Cersei. These two appear to be like they they know where they what their roles are and how to play and survive. And whereas Ned is like, well, this is the rule book. And everyone's like, get out of here with that. Yeah, I think a lot of fans are thinking that if Ned was smarter, he would just assume that everyone in the South is, is his enemy. Mm hmm. Like you, you go in go in there and just assume that everyone in here would rather have you gone or dead. And then right. just sort of try to outgame them and outwit them, assuming that all everyone's your enemy. How many people live that way in the, in their real life? Like do you, you know, how many people go into work and think, "All right, these are all my enemies and I need to get them before they get me." It's just not how people, normal people live their lives. Well, I feel like that was a shot at me. It it is kind of a shot at you. I mean, that's I operate. <laughs> All right, <laughs> who's out to get me today? How do I how do I eliminate them? And it's not even necessarily like from my own gain. I mean, don't get me wrong. I I'm trying to gain, but there's there's you're you're constantly playing defense and offense at the same time. Game of Thrones is basketball. So you're kind of with me on this. You're think you're thinking Ned's gonna die no matter what he does. 
Right. And that's why it's like, I think with the Cersei thing, if you don't play that card right away, I mean, you're good. I still think he's going to die. He's headed towards that path, but you can use that later. Again, yeah. I'm thinking more along the lines of Ned trying to be more crafty yeah, yeah. and okay. I got this bit of information. I don't want to, I don't want to use my leverage right away. Let me use this later because this might really come in handy, but instead, he just puts all his cards on the table because he's just like, look, guys, I know what's going on. The, the jig is up, right? And everybody's mm -hmm. like, no, not, not, I don't think so, bros. The other and, thing uh, that I didn't mention that some fans like is uh, Ned gets an, an offer from Renly. Renly says, look, we got to move fast. Uh, we need to declare me king. And we will unite my forces and the North against the Lannisters. And a lot of people think eh, maybe Ned should have taken that offer. Mm. Um, I just feel like that is so against his character. Right. I don't think he, I, I mean, maybe, he, maybe a different person might have been able to take that offer. I don't think Ned could have taken the offer. Well, and, and I think going back to what I was saying, like if you, if you don't play all those cards right away and you prolong this, it could be a period of time where he's realizing, look, this is, this is not going to work out. Maybe I need to, join forces with with renly right like when there's an opportunity later but he just went all in on on what he thought was uh cooler heads will just prevail out of this and um uh, a head did prevail so to speak but uh um <laughs> and it got cold i suppose and i then i think to your point at the end of it just go out go out true to yourself because now his legacy is like it's all what do you how do you how do your family recover from that yeah. I think that if Ned had taken Renly's offer, then the fan conversation would be that this is not authentic Ned. Ned wouldn't have done it. Sure. You know, we'd be talking about how uh, you know, his character arc doesn't make sense. Well, and that's and that's the challenge, right, if you're if you're viewing this because I'm sure at least initially, right? I mean, obviously I'm, you know, living it at the moment that like a lot of other fans were, where they're, you know, they're trying to make sense and make peace with this whole thing. And so I'm sure there's this sense of like, well, he could have done this. He could have done that. But it, it does seem that this was like, this was an inevitability given Ned, like as great as Ned may be. And as much as we may have fallen in love with him in this short period of time, in terms of like his heroism and his honor, um, the reality is, is this kind of player doesn't last very long in this game. And then, and, and at the same time, you got someone like Sam Tarley, you know, he just kind of lucks himself into stupid situations where he survives. Yeah, like uh, like Vern and uh, and Stand by Me, right? Like, I mean, probably should have gotten smashed by a train or oh, beat Verno. up by anything. Yeah, get off your knees, Verno. You got to run, man. Man, don't. It's just a comb. <laughs> it's like let the comb go. But like he was also thinking, he was trying to think big picture. Like, well, you know, the interview. Yeah, they're gonna find the body. They're gonna be heroes, right? They're gonna want to comb their hair before the cameras roll. Yeah, and he, of all of them, has no hair. Essentially, he's got a buzz cut. <laughs> he was but thinking, he's thinking of, for everybody. He was thinking else. for everyone else. Yeah, yeah. All right, Steve. I think we've uh, we've definitely done some good in the world. No animals were harmed during the making of this production. No, 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 no. It's a pre-existing condition, <laughs> and uh, and we we are now prepping for season two. Steve, I think you're gonna like it. Well, we shall see.
For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to revisit a point about Ned that came up in my conversation with Don Riggs a few weeks ago. This was a point about honor and morality in Tolkien's world versus the same in Martin's world. I won't argue that Ned was intentionally cribbed from Aragorn. That's not my point here. Um, My point here is a little bit softer. And here it is. In Tolkien's world, Aragorn's lack of ambition, his desire to stay out of politics, his ability to resist the temptation of power, these things are armor for Aragorn. In at least two ways, the intention to cast off power is what ultimately makes Aragorn throne-worthy. So, here are the two ways. First, Aragorn is a key member of the Fellowship, and... The mission of the Fellowship is to destroy the symbol for ill-begotten power. The idea here is that destroying the One Ring would be unthinkable to Sauron, who is hell-bent on power at any price. So, Aragorn's first and most important mission is to eschew power. Hey, by the way, I reject the notion that Tolkien doesn't traffic in morally gray characters. Smeagol is among the most gray characters in all of literature. And the key plot twist of The Hobbit involves a morally gray decision by the main character. So let's put that nonsense away. All right. So secondly, Aragorn has ample opportunity to take the ring for himself, but he refuses to do it. He's not opposed to the idea of kingship. But the idea of becoming king in a dirty way is repulsive to him. I'm not saying that Aragorn is above reproach, but he views the ring as a test of his character, and it's the red line he won't cross. It's like for Ned, he won't kill children. That's just the red line he won't cross. For Aragorn, it's taking the one ring. And because he won't betray his most deeply held value, he remains true. For Tolkien, in my opinion, this is more important than Aragorn's claim, or his fancy sword, or his fancy blood. He's able to become a true king because he's proven that he can resist corruption. So in Tolkien's world, Aragorn's armor is his mastery over his own desires, his ability to cast off power, really his refusal to sully his honor. Now, so far in Martin's world... The opposite is true, all right? So we don't know how things will ultimately end, but we know that Ned and Aragorn end up with opposite fates. As many others have observed, Ned's refusal to corrupt his honor is a weakness in Martin's world. And most of the time, I think I see it this way. Someone with Aragorn's virtues wouldn't fare well in Martin's world. Okay, I think I agree with myself on this point. But I have this little Gollum Smeagol thing going on in my head on this point. Sometimes I wonder if Ned isn't a little bit more like Boromir in the end. By the way, Boromir is another wonderfully great character in Tolkien. Alright, so why Boromir? Because at the end of the day, neither Boromir nor Ned could resist the dirtier way to power. Boromir goes for the ring. He thinks it's going to be for the greater good, and really he's giving in to his own desire for power, and these things are probably merged in his mind. And Ned goes for the throne. He underhandedly omits Joffrey's name from Robert's succession order. 
This, if it worked, would have put Ned on the throne. Both Boromir and Ned grasp power in the end as would-be stewards of the throne. Uh, Boromir as a steward, Ned as a king regent, uh, but basically that's that's the same job. And both die trying. And I'm not sure if this matters, but when they look in the mirror, they're both the spitting image of Sean Bean. Hard to say what would have happened if Ned would have simply written Joffrey's name on that document. I can't imagine that any outcome would have gone well for Ned down south. But it's possible that Ned died not because he was too beholden to honor, but because in the end he couldn't hold on to his honor. And that's all for this week.